This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'd like to hold hearings into the two of you being stupid. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. Today we're talking about Season 1, Episode 13. Take Out the Trash Day, written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Ken Olin, whom we know from his role as uh, Michael Stedman on 30-something. Coming up later, we're going to talk to Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania about hate crimes, a big topic in this episode, because Senator Casey just introduced the Hate Crimes Prevention Act, a piece of legislation that addresses gun ownership and hate crimes, which was spurred forward by the recent mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando. And in a special twofer, we'll have another guest and we'll talk to the fabulous Liza Weil, whom you know from her roles as Amanda Tanner on Scandal. Paris Geller on The Gilmore Girls. Currently, she plays Bonnie Winterbottom on How to Get Away with Murder. And we'll talk to her about her role as Karen Larson on this very episode. Let me read the NBC synopsis of the episode. While President Bartlett and his staff debate the appropriate response to a controversial new sex education study, there are fears that the parents of a murdered gay teenager should be excused from attending the signing of a hate crimes bill because of the father's embarrassment about his son's homosexuality. Josh and Sam meet with an appropriations subcommittee, which is investigating Josh's lack of cooperation in the White House staff drug probe, all of which is designed to expose Leo's former substance abuse problem. Toby relishes his verbal duel with some congressmen who have held up the newest appointments for the Public Broadcasting Corporation. CJ is advised to save a few embarrassing stories for release on Friday to blunt the effect on the media over the weekend. But she also finds time to continue her frisky flirtation with the White House reporter, Danny. Once again, I'm going to give a shout out to whoever wrote this, whoever wrote Frisky Flirtation. Nice. That's a lot of alliteration for anxious anchors. It's a pretty peppy synopsis, pal. But do you know what my, you know? I was referring to? A lot of alliteration for anxious anchors. A lot of alliteration from anxious anchors placed in powerful posts. I thought it was the same thing that I'm referring to. Pretty peppy party, isn't it, pal? No, maybe it is. Broadcast news? Yeah, okay, it is. <laughs> what do you think of this episode? I love this episode. Yeah, it's a good episode. Yeah. It's got a lot of gravity and a lot of seriousness in the subject matter, but it is hilarious. The cold open of the episode is so loaded with jokes. CJ in the press room? Yeah. CJ in the press room and the sex education report. That was really funny. And then Carol has the thing about the pens, why 15 pens, but they continue the running joke of not being able to spell correctly. Carol, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, thank you for that. We do our homework. You misspelled senator. That was funny. But let me tell you that I bumped on this already on something. 15 pens. The president will sign the bill with 15 pens. And I guess someone on my staff wanted you to know that. CJ? Tell me you don't have a question about the pens. CJ, I have a question about the pens. Yes, Danny. Josiah Barlett has 13 letters in it. How's the president going to use 15 pens? Danny? I just... You know you were the only one in the room doing the math on that, right? I, I just... The only one in the room. My readers expect a little bit more. <laughs> 15 pens, 13 letters. They must have stuck something in here about... Yes. He's gonna... Interesting. 
He's going to literally dot the I and cross the T's. Thank you. Freak boy. Thank you again. Why aren't there 16 pens to give away? (laughs) One for each T? Well, I mean... Isn't the implication that, right? Right. There's two T's and an I, so that would be an additional three pens. So then there really should have been a follow-up question from Danny. Why not 16 pens, ZJ? That bothered me. Of course it bothered you, freak boy. Freak boy. <laughs> Fair enough. By the way, I'm going to throw this out there because others have noted the ATX panel. That was a lot of fun. It was a fun weekend. It was awesome. But it was not lost on many of the shrewd listeners in our audience that Aaron Sorkin himself referred only to Bartlett and not President Bartlett. And that has freed me up. I'm throwing it to the wind. I no no. longer feel any uh, compunction about saying Bartlett as opposed to President Bartlett. Oh, man. Uh, See, for me, I was sitting there and every time he was saying it, I was like, President Bartlett. (laughs) I actually didn't even notice it during the panel, but so many people have pointed it out. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. no, and I, and I thank you. I thank oh. them. I wasn't really listening. <laughs> After the cold open and the title sequence, we get yet another round of Donna and Josh exposition. And I feel like we should have a name for that. <laughs> have you got one? No. Oh. <laughs> should we throw this to the listeners? Yeah, please do that. I mean, I thought maybe the brain that came up with flintel would have a... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm stalling out. <laughs> a term... For, um, for it's been a long morning, Rishi. <laughs> this is this is our trope. Here's what we're looking for. What do we call it when Donna asks a question to Josh, so Josh can explain the premise of the entire episode in a walk and talk audience. early on in the episode? What's take out the trash day? Friday. I mean, what is it? Any stories we have to give the press that we're not wild about, we give them all in a lump on Friday. Why do you do it in a lump? Instead of one at a time? I think you'd want to spread them out. They've got X column inches to fill, right? They're going to fill them no matter what. Yes. So if we give them one story, that story's X column inches. You give them five stories? A fifth the size. Why do you do it on Friday? Because no one reads the paper on Saturday. You guys are real populous, aren't you? Okay, here's another hilarious part that I never noticed until this particular rewatch. What's that? As everybody kind of gathers in Leo's office, Josh is already in there, and he's eating his dinner, and Leo and Toby and Sam come in. And um, then Josh starts telling Leo about how they're going to go on the hill. And in the background, as he's speaking, Sam is eating, just eating the leftovers from Josh's dinner. Um, and Josh at one point turns around and sees Sam. Oh, I did not notice that. And he's like caught red-handed with like a piece, piece of food in his mouth. <laughs> I, I, I got to go back and look at that. I don't know how I missed that. I love it. That is funny. What else? What's this thing on the hill? Sam and me, we're meeting with Bruno from an appropriations subcommittee that has jurisdiction over the White House budget. So how about the meeting? Representative Joseph Bruno, Republican of Pennsylvania, played by James Handy, very recognizable character actor. He's somebody they can work with. Yeah, he's willing to make a deal. What do you make of that deal? Leo for the sex ed report seems like an incredibly good deal for the White House. Yes, sir. You want the White House to keep it in a drawer for a year? Yes, sir. Why? I don't want the debate. Nobody does. Nobody wants to support it. Nobody wants to oppose it. Nobody wants to debate, not till after the midterms. We put this thing in a drawer for a year and you can guarantee us- That there'll be no hearings in the House, yes. It's not like they have to kill the report. They just have to wait until after the midterm elections. Seems like a pretty good deal for them. But how many unwanted babies are gonna be born in that time, Rishi? How many? I mean, to save one man's career. 
What do you think about the deal then? I think, look, this is politics. It's the practical, real side of uh, politics. And uh, it's probably a very good deal. But the thing is, like, it's just about introducing a report. It's not even necessarily that the report would take hold and it would have an effect and legislation would be passed and that legislation would be enacted by the schools. I mean, there's several steps and ifs that would have to all line up to say, oh, by doing this, this thing isn't happening. That is true. And as a viewer of the show and a fan of Leo's, and sure like him, I get it all. But then if you take a step back, you know, the shelving something potentially important to save one guy who is not being falsely accused, he's being outed for something that, in fact, was the case, that he had an addiction to or continued to have an addiction to, but no longer acts on it to of painkillers and alcohol. So I, I don't know. I think there's an argument to be made that, that you know, they're placing the personal over the greater good. I don't think that it stops with Leo. Really, like, the, the case to be made for keeping the investigation from going forward, from stopping hearings, um, it is framed like it's just about saving that one person, but I don't think that's true. I think there are ripples that would happen in terms of the political capital that the administration has and their standing with the public or certainly certain sectors of the public. So I think that it is actually in the service of the president. Additionally, I guess it also has greater implications about uh, the right to privacy. That's true too, yeah. Okay, okay, I'm signing off on the shelving of the sex report. I needed to get Leo off the hook, CJ. It's the deal Josh and Sam made. Yes. We'll deal with it after the midterm elections. I understand. I was hoping you would. Yes, sir. Um, several members of the press already know, I think, the report came back to us and... Yeah. Uh, There's nothing wrong with telling them we got it. I wouldn't make a big deal out of it. We got it. We're looking at it. We're studying it. Throw it out with the trash. Yes, sir. Thanks, CJ. Thank you, sir. Mr. President? We can all be better teachers. I know. At the end, it felt a lot like the enemy's line. Oh, boom. I wrote that exact thing down. I thought the exact same thing. Yeah. Mr. President. Yeah. We talk about enemies more than we used to. And I wanted to go, feels like a good exit line. But what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so delighted that you said that. Because I did feel the same thing. And I think, am I being too critical? But no, that's, I drew an exact parallel to the enemies thing. And it ends up playing like a sort of inscrutably passive-aggressive <laughs> thing to say, where the pres- you know, they should come back to the president going, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Landingham, I felt like, emerges even more as a character in this episode. Both True. in terms of her relationship to the president and also to the other assistance. What are you girls doing? We're just talking, Mrs. Lanningham. You all work for very important people. This is not a place for gossip. You understand me? Yes, Mm ma'am. And she calls them girls. That whole scene really reinforced the boys' clubbiness of this work environment. It's all women. And then the older woman comes in, calls them girls, and scolds them for gossiping. Right. It's a little scene out of Mad Men. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. I don't know why everyone wasn't smoking. I don't know what your goals are, but don't overdo it with the perfume. Keep a fifth of something in your desk. Mr. Draper drinks rye. Also, invest in some aspirin, band-aids, and a needle and thread. 
Also with the Mrs. Landingham, I had two thoughts. One, that bananas are not just a good source of potassium, but they're a great way to start a conversation about potassium. Mr. President, did you say you wanted a banana? No. Nancy, we're going to get the president a banana. I really don't want a banana. Are you sure, sir? Yes, thank you. It's got lots of potassium. I'm done talking to you now. Mrs. Landingham. Yes, sir. You're not going to believe this, but I think I'd actually like a banana. I'm afraid not, sir, no. Why not? You were offered one earlier, sir, and you were snippy. I wasn't snippy. I'm afraid you were, Mr. President. And also that were I the president, I would have fired her for refusing to bring me a banana. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos to her for holding her ground, but get, get him a banana. <laughs> but that's the thing is you can't fire your mom and becomes clear here that Mrs. Landingham is President Bartlett's surrogate mom. Hmm. Right? Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Would you like to share what's in that report, sir? With you? Yes, sir. No. May I ask why not, sir? Because I'd rather not be in therapy for the rest of my life. Very well, sir. That's funny. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit because the whole thing with the banana reminded me so much of my dad. Oh, did you say you want a banana? No, thank you. I don't want a banana. Let me get you a banana. It's fine. It's no problem. I'll get you a banana. It's like, no, no, no. I actually said I didn't want a banana. It's no trouble at all. Hold on. Banana is coming. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's my dad to a T. Such a sweet spirit. But sometimes you're like inconveniencing me with your your generosity. (laughs) The part that is not like my dad. Later, if you were like, actually, I will take a banana. My dad will be like, here's six. And you'd be like, I really just wanted one. (laughs) So that's where he and Mrs. Landingham part ways. Yes. There is a scene between CJ and Toby where there's clearly still some lingering resentment between them. He makes a, a joke to her about leaking the story. Hey. You remember Chad McGrudian? The advance man? Yeah. He took a ride. I know about this already. The round of golf. How do you know? Danny got it from a White House source. And Danny gave it to you? Any problem with that? As long as it wasn't the other way around. Oh, it was a joke. It better have been. Although, when I heard it, it sounded to me like he might be making sure. Right. Like he says, I'm joking. I was joking when she takes offense. But it seemed to me like it might have been a minor fishing expedition. Like so many jokes, right? There's like it's there 90% joke and 10% passive aggressive right. truth. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's another payoff to it later when she actually goes to meet up with Danny. And it kind of prolongs their will they, won't they scenario. Because as long as she's feeling pressure from Toby or a sense of like, maybe there's some lack of professionalism on her part because of her relationship with, with Danny, it prevents her from really pursuing in a real way, a, a meaningful relationship with him because it pits her professionalism against her feelings. There won't be any more kissing. I'm sorry to hear that. And we know where it's coming from, you know, because 20 minutes earlier, Toby had been accusing her of this, did it go the other way? And of course, later in the episode, she actually does attempt to leak a story to him. Right. If you call Mr. and Mrs. Lydell in St. Paul and ask them why, look. Don't leak me a story. I wasn't. I've seen this look on the face of four other press secretaries before you. You got a story in the trash this week that's a story. You want it out there and someone said no. They're all stories this week. That happens sometimes. Four other press secretaries and you never took a free lead? I always took a free lead. Then? Not from you. Why? Because 20 minutes from now, you're going to remember you're a professional and you're not going to like me anymore. When CJ and Danny are talking about kissing and they've also talked about the sex ed report. 
Like I said, I applaud the spirit, but I think there's there's better things ahead, as I'm sure you're about to read. Yeah, that was saucy. It was saucy. There was a little bit of sauce in the in the episode with Josh saying. By the way, pages 27 to 33, a couple of things every girl should know. Yes, yes. And the whole <laughs> sticky wicket line. Yep. Everything but. Yes. Ah. Yes. They want teachers to teach. Yes. And so the sticky wicket joke was. A regrettable pun. The president really feels sort of like a mother hen in this episode. The way that he talks to Leo about Simon Bly. And, you know, the way he's like, look, I know you like this guy, but you're going to get your heart broken. It's a good scene, too. You get to see mad, mad, mad Leo. Yeah. And, uh... But I, but I, even the setup, even just the, the president talking to Leo first about it, is so nice. They have another great moment. I remember what you were saying in the last episode. I believe that, that there's history between those guys. I need some counsel. That you couldn't get from me? Or Toby, or Josh, or Sam, or CJ? I didn't mean that, Mr. President. I knew you. And of course, your counsel is valued above all else. I just meant... I can use all the help I can get. You put a lot of faith in people, Leon. I love you for that. I just don't want to see you get disappointed. Yes, sir. He figures it out pretty quickly and uh, and knows this is no friend of his. He understands why he's shown up. He wants him to consider resigning. And uh, in fact, Simon is about to publicly call for it. Simon, I'm just taking a guess. Is there an op-ed piece coming out that I should know about? In tomorrow's post, I wanted to let you know as a courtesy since we've been friends for so long. I have a copy with me. No, I don't need to see it. I know what it says. Leo... For the good of the party. For the good of the president. Yes. Leading Democrat comes out in the post and calls for my resignation. That probably won't get much attention. Leo... And it will definitely not distract from the president's agenda. Hang on a second. But I haven't seen you making the rounds on the Sunday morning talk shows in a while, Simon. I'm glad I could help out. I was hoping this would go differently. Tell me something. Where's your grave concern for country, party, and president when you're out whoring for Atlantic oil? I'm insulted by that. Well, God, I sure didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I do not. I think you should walk out of here now. As a matter of fact, I think you should run. There's a really weird moment in this scene. With Simon Bly? Yes, as I've mentioned, I watched with the closed captioning on. And at one point, Leo kind of tears into Simon and says, you're out whoring for Atlantic oil. And the subtitle says, you're out whoring for standard oil. Wow. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. But but it's weird, right? Sometimes it doesn't match up 100%. Yeah. Um, And and I've even noticed there was an episode (laughs) of The Bachelor where somebody says, like, you're a real jerk. And the closed captioning said, you're a douchebag. <laughs> like, well, this is actually, this is commentary. This isn't, right. this isn't closed captioning. This is commentary. Yeah. <laughs> kind of fantastic. The big scene, I guess, is the scene with the Lydells. You've got the scene with the Lydells, but you also have the scene with Simon Bly. And you also have Leo's scene with Karen Larson. Mm-hmm. Which we're going to talk about a little bit later with Liza Weil. Yeah. A little double Gilmore Girls in Leo's office. Because Simon Bly is played by... Dakin Matthews. Who also played Headmaster Charleston on The Gilmore Girls. He's a terrific actor. Big theater actor, Shakespearean actor, and scholar, I think. 
His his voice drips with something in the moment he comes into the scene. Like like the idea of what the president has warned Leo about, it feels like you get it immediately with the first line. He he has like a, a he seems slimy from the first moment he he speaks. We like actors who do that, like Roger Rees and the handshake. Yeah. He enters shaking a hand in a way that immediately establishes a character. And I guess Dakin Matthews does the same thing just vocally. Yeah, it's incredible. As a non-actor, I'm very impressed by that. As a non-actor, I'm also impressed by it. (laughs) One thing that's interesting about Simon Bly and about a scene between CJ and Danny where she asks about the Lydells. In both cases... You've got characters who are looking outside of the inner circle for advice. In CJ's case, I feel like it's a reflection of her feeling like, you know, she's not trusted, and so she needs some external support. With Leo's case, it's a little more confusing, because it feels like these guys have his back, but maybe it's just that he feels like they're actually blinded by their loyalty. I mean, Simon Bly uses the phrase that the president is blinded by friendship. And the point that you objected to where Sam was like, yeah, you gave me an order, but I disobeyed you because tough. And so maybe he needed somebody who wasn't so great of a friend because... I think that's exactly what it is. And I would draw a direct line between uh, uh, the way Josh and Sam are constantly going against Leo's wishes to do what they think is the right thing for him. I think there's a sort of yes-man status that uh, you sometimes want to get away from and get the cold, hard take... Uh, that somebody a little bit more objective will give you. Of course, ultimately, uh, he Leo fights back hard against Simon's take, which is this is actually cause for resignation, and that would be the best thing for the party. Um, but but I think that's what he was doing was seeking out uh, a more coolly objective point of view. Do you think he was fair on Simon Bly? I mean, Simon Bly's like, I think you should resign. No, I think in a, in a way. I liked the, that it was a very human reaction. There was no, let me consider that. Right. Because it's not, it's not the most unreasonable position to take. Right, exactly. I, it's a bummer to hear, I'm quite sure, if you're Leo. But it's, it's a defendable opinion. Yeah, I mean, if he's like, hey, you know what? I, I need some outside counsel. Everybody in here has got my back, and they're all like, you're fine, you're in the right, and you should keep on with this course. I'm going to look to somebody else to get a second opinion. Second opinion is something that's other than what these guys are saying, and I'm going to get pissed about right. it. Or then maybe it was the fact that he's already written an op-ed and it's coming out. And really, really what he's saying is, I'm not just um, that's just pulling you aside to say, hey, I think you ought to consider this. I've already written a piece that's coming out in the paper. Yeah, I think that's probably what the bigger thing is. It, maybe he's not giving him genuine advice. He's giving him advice that's going to give him a chance to... Um, take the bully pulpit for a second and, or, you know, stand on a soapbox and, and say, this is what I think. And it is more selfish than as a friend, but still I was like, maybe Leo, maybe he's got a point. Yeah. This is another episode where I had sympathy for Mandy, mm-hmm. both having to sit with the president while he goes through the sex ed report. <laughs> yeah. It's gotta be uncomfortable. But then also telling CJ that she has to send the Lydell's home. Early on in the cold open, CJ does what we've seen her now do a couple times where she kind of precipitously acts. So she jumps ahead without maybe seeing things through. And she's like, oh, definitely, you know, they'll definitely be there. And and Mandy's like, I wish you hadn't said that. And it seems like maybe CJ still 
learning to like keep her cards close to her chest. Right. Or hedge things a little bit if you're not 100% sure about them. I mean, I, I felt the same thing too. Well, you know, maybe Mandy ought to have pulled her aside before the press conference. Right? <laughs> There's some sort of miscommunication going on. If she thinks something's locked and loaded in 100%, maybe it's her fault. Uh, or maybe somebody is not communicating with her what needs to be said. Yeah. Well, I think that CJ's own assumptions um, and biases are playing into it. She's like, there's no way that this guy is going to be against this because it was about his son. Right. That's right. We do learn that she's just incredulous to the point of asking several other people, is it possible that somebody whose child was slain for being homosexual could find himself after that act still embarrassed? Is it possible that a father could be embarrassed about his son being gay even after his son was murdered? Of course, it turns out she's completely wrong about the whole thing. But Mandy is the one who has to then say, you know, she tells her to get it together. That's got to be hard to be the heartless one. I mean, maybe Mandy is a little bit more predisposed. That character is predisposed to, to be like that. There's a reason why she's good at her job. Yeah. That's her job. Yeah. Appearances, appearances. But again, I find myself saying this every now and then. She's not wrong. No. And though she didn't, uh, she wasn't quite able to tease out what Mr. Lydell's reticence was about, there was something there. Yeah. So I put this episode to people who hate on Mandy. Like, what's your issue with her here? I, I would challenge you to find one. Because I feel like she, she's serving the team well. I like this episode for her. But CJ has a lot of heart in this episode. Like, you can see how much it's affected her coming out of the room, you know, and she's like, she's really affected by the whole dynamic and, and the whole issue. You can see how much it has moved her and uh, moved her to the point where she's willing to be impractical and say, yeah, let, let him say what he's going to say. He deserves it. Yeah. We, she's really bristling as she brushes up against what the job is and what the situation is. And right. she does in that scene with uh, President Bartlett as well. Yeah, presenting um, their agenda as opposed to allowing a dissenting voice. Even though the dialogue is important, it's not her job to present both sides of the argument. Yeah, and it must be hard to come to terms often. And I think we'll see it again and again with uh, kind of what the deal is, what the job is. Yeah, you have to present the party line. I also love that Toby, when he comes out from his conversation about the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Oh yeah, we haven't mentioned that yet. He goes back in and he says, I gotta get back in there. This is too much fun. And I was like, oh, he's enjoying himself? Right. This is a great, clever little setup by Aaron. It's just that we think he's in battle and there's something very important to him at stake, but he knows he's going to win the entire time. He's just having fun. He's just a cat playing with a mouse. Yeah. And I was also thinking during this entire time as Toby um, fights the good fight to uh, save the Muppets and Sesame Street for PBS, how they are now on HBO. What would Toby think? So I love this episode because it has sort of the hallmark attributes of a great West Wing episode for me. There is heroic intent, people wanting to do the right thing. There is dissent and disagreement. You've got the hate crimes bill that the administration is trying to get passed, but you've gotten some dissent. In in Excelsis Deo, we heard some dissent. CJ. Beyond the crime itself is a manifestation of racism or sexism or anti-Semitism or homophobia that are only the tip of the iceberg of a pathology troubling this country. I'm aware of all of that. 
I'm just not sure it's right to legislate against how someone thinks. A lot of people aren't sure. A lot of them work here. And I'm telling you to dial it down. Okay. And then in this episode, you have the Lydell saying, The hate crimes bill is fine. Who gives a damn? It's fine. I don't care. If you ask me, we shouldn't be making laws against what's in a person's head, but I don't give a damn. It's fine. I don't understand how this president, who I voted for, I don't understand how he can take such a completely weak-ass position on gay rights. Gays in the military, same-sex marriage, gay adoption, boards of education. Where the hell is he? I want to know what quality necessary to being a parent the president feels my son lacked. I want to know from this president who has served not one day in uniform. I had two tours in Vietnam. I want to know what quality necessary to being a soldier this president feels my son lacked. Lady, I'm not embarrassed that my son was gay. My government is. The gist of what he seemed to be saying is I don't really care much about the hate crimes bill. Like that's, that's the least of it. Yeah. Uh, why isn't anything being done on all these right. other fronts? So I, and in that sense, he's minimizing, I think the importance of hate crime legislation, which I found interesting. Yeah. And I myself have an ambivalence about it. Mm-hmm. Obviously the direct parallel uh, that's being drawn is between the Liddell story and that of Matthew Shepard and Matthew Shepard's killers were convicted and sentenced not under a hate crime uh, uh, law because one didn't exist in Wyoming. And they're serving consecutive life sentences, I believe. There's no enhanced sentencing had it been uh, under a hate crime law that would have, there's no extra they would have been put away for. And so there there are a lot of issues, and we're going to talk to uh, Senator Casey later about some of them. There's another little thread that runs through the whole episode about a town that wants the only laws of the land to be that of the Ten Commandments. There is a town in Alabama that wants to abolish all laws, except the Ten Commandments. I saw it. Well, they're gonna have a problem. And what Sam's running objection to the whole thing is, is how do you know if someone is coveting their neighbor's wife? That's a thought crime. Yeah, how do you enforce what somebody is thinking? That's the problem with the commandments. Well, the same problem exists with hate crimes. I don't feel like they drew those two together. I feel like they existed concurrently, but not, they didn't correlate them. I had a a similar thought, but I kind of liked that what seems like an innocuously humorous side does in its way subtly comment on the concept of hate crime legislation and thought crime? And is it really possible to divine what is going through a criminal's mind uh, at the time of the crime? Yeah. There's so much going on in this episode like that. Things that don't necessarily get their full outing or their full moment. There's a weird little mention a couple times of a possibly racist professor of Zoe's that really doesn't get fleshed out at all, but also in its way is subtly in the same arena, uh, a teacher teaching and what his point of view and what his thoughts are and how that affects others. I thought all these things sort of dance around and inform in small ways the main focus and subject of the episode. I guess that's probably 
part of what CJ is saying when she says we could all be better teachers, right? Yeah, I think that's in there too. But will you, will you talk a little more about your ambivalence about hate crimes? I'm not saying that yeah. because well, I disagree I mean, look, with you. I, I do see their value and there's a certain, I think, sense of security in having specific groups recognized as overwhelmingly being victims of certain kinds of crimes and you know and i'm jewish and the adl the anti-defamation league is very pro hate crime legislation the naacp is and i'm not against it i just have an ambivalence i guess on several levels one the difficulty of figuring out what's inside a criminal's mind and is it one single thought or is there a lot going on and is it a murky area that's very difficult to establish um, and can these kind of laws be equally and fairly enforced and if the criminal action is identical in two instances and in one you've decided it was motivated by hate and then uh, by something else in another does it call ultimately for a different sentence right I also know additionally, just from reading about it, I think there's not really much, if any, evidence to suggest that these enhanced sentences deter anyone from committing crime. Do longer sentences for thought criminals help, or does it fail to address a mind frame that maybe could be open to rehabilitation or just makes a longer sentence for somebody who's acted out of hate? Yeah, I think it's an imperfect avenue to try and rectify culture. I think in terms of the way that laws work, you shouldn't have different sentences for the same crime based on motive. In a vacuum, there's no need for it. But I think the problem is that the reality is actually very messy. And the reality is that there are crimes that are motivated by hate. And there are people who are targeted not because of anything about them personally, but because they are members of a class. And so... You have to figure out a way to fix it. And if you're a legislator, the only way you can fix it is by writing new laws or changing existing laws. So it's like a way to change cultural attitudes with the limited tools that you have. It's not perfect and it's weird and messy, but I think that it's important even just just as a cultural symbol. Symbolism matters and telling the various groups that they are recognized and protected is significant. But also when we get to the actual, as you say, getting something actually done, one of the things I'm interested in discussing with Senator Bob Casey, Democrat of Pennsylvania, is this idea that he's pushing for and mentioned during the filibuster that perhaps there should be a ban on the acquiring of weapons by people seriously suspected of or have been convicted of misdemeanor hate crimes. Because to me, that actually pushes away some of my ambivalence about hate crime legislation, because that says if we can identify this group of people that have acted out on hate before, not in a felonious manner, but keep weapons out of their hands, then maybe we really are preventing future tragedies like what happened in Orlando. And so that's very practical. That's where I I get on board and I go, okay, well, this makes sense. Right. If you can identify people who have an inclination towards violence motivated by hatred for any of these protected groups and we can keep guns out of their hands, that's when I started thinking, well, that's a very direct benefit that we'd have. Right. That's one of the, I think, brilliant things about the scene with Mr. Lydell is he's saying these are the root problems. Maybe there won't be so much hate out out there if we have a society where 
gay adoption is something that we see frequently in same-sex marriage and, you know, all the things that he ticks off. Right, right. That's the culture that is being legislated. You know, it's like you add on to these bills, like the, even the Civil Rights Act or like the Equal Rights Act. We've already said all men are created equal. So, you know, why do you need to hang another ornament on it? But you do, because without that extra level of codification, obviously things aren't falling into line. Right. Why was there push for legislation, anti-lynching laws? Because there was a time when the laws against murder weren't being enforced. Right. So I, I do understand, unfortunately, it's like an above and a beyond thing. Well, like, this isn't working. The fundamental law isn't working. And so we have to sort of cast a light on areas that need to be addressed. Yeah, a lot of times the debate is like, why don't we just enforce the laws that we already have? Right. Rather than create new laws, we should enforce the laws that we already have. And the fact is that, like, that sometimes just isn't enough. And to say, oh, okay, well, now we really intend to enforce the laws, it just doesn't, at a practical level, actually work or make a difference. And you have to have the symbolic gesture of creating something new to buttress what's already there in order to make a difference. I wanted to get some context about the Matthew Shepard parallels in this episode. So I spoke to someone who knew him and who continues to work for his legacy. I'm Jason Marsden. I'm the executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation here in Denver, Colorado. How big of a deal do you think it was that this episode focused on hate crimes and had a Matthew Shepard-inspired storyline? Yeah, I, I think it was very significant for the West Wing to tackle this issue. Uh, it would have read, I think, at that time very clearly to anyone who had followed Matt's story that it was a commentary on that. Going back, you know, this episode airs in, I think, early 2000. Yeah. Probably would have been written in the middle of 1999 at a time when the trials of Matt's killers uh, were still in progress in Laramie, Wyoming. They were very much in the news. Uh, and this was a new piece of, of territory for the national and even international media to cover the issue of an anti-gay hate crime. There have been anti-gay hate crimes probably since before historical record um, and this was the first one that merited attention from the national media. Uh, many Americans had no idea that hate crimes uh, were as severe and violent as they were, nor as prevalent as they, as they were and continue to be. This episode uh, would have struck viewers at the time as being groundbreaking uh, for, for covering this issue. Something that's, I think, so particularly remarkable is that it's not just a matter of including a storyline that's about Matthew Shepard, but presenting the parents in this way where they take the administration to task for how they deal with gay issues. Right. I think, you know, it echoes in many ways uh, the experience Dennis and Judy Shepard went through, especially in that first year. Uh, it was Dennis who did most of the speaking. Dennis who delivered a victim impact statement in open court that is still quoted in is a great piece of American jurisprudential history. Uh, it was Dennis who spoke at the press conference uh, in the hours before Matt's funeral in Casper, Wyoming in October of 1998. And um, to have uh, the episode acknowledge that the father could be in a leading position of standing up for his son, this echoes the lived experience of a lot of gay men what do you think about the relevance of the episode at this point in history? Does it still resonate for you? It's funny to look back on this episode as a time capsule from here in this in this future we couldn't have imagined back then when same-sex marriage is legal, uh, same-sex couples can adopt in all 50 states, we can serve in the military. But 
it wasn't that much of a time capsule piece even four or five years ago. You know, it's only been a year that it's been uh, legal for our community to adopt in all 50 states. It's only been a couple years that marriage uh, has started rolling out broadly across the country. You know, we look at Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which Mr. Lydell refers to in that episode. and Right, and the repeal of that only happened... Um, only five years ago, less than five years ago. You still couldn't serve openly in the military. And, right. and another thing that I noticed was the, the cultural arrogance that is displayed at the White House. Uh, a remark is made that... This guy sells dental supplies in the Twin Cities, so how enlightened do you think he's going to be? How enlightened could he be? Yeah. And I think even 16 years ago, that would have rang false to people from the middle of the country. I, I grew up an hour and a half from the Twin Cities, and uh, my relatives were tremendously supportive and very curious and interested in what our community was like and very grateful to have a family member who was a part of it. So I don't know if that was to portray Washington, D.C. as a little bit deaf to what the flyover states uh, are like. Yeah, there have definitely been some examples in the show of how the Bartlett administration can be a little bit arrogant or a little bit elitist, and, and that's definitely a stark example of that. Um, so where can listeners go if they want to learn more? I'd invite anybody who'd like to learn more about the Matthew Shepard Foundation's work to visit us on the web at matthewshepard.org. Uh, specifically, a lot of information about hate crimes is available at matthewshepard.org slash hate-crimes-reporting. And we'll put a link to that up on thewestwingweekly.com as well. Jason, thanks so much for, for joining us and giving us your insight. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much for reaching out to us. We're joined now by Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania. He used to be a pro-gun senator, but his opinion on gun control changed after the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School. He's now introduced the Hate Crimes Prevention Act in the wake of the massacre at Orlando's Pulse nightclub. Senator Casey, welcome to the podcast, and can you tell us about your bill? Sure. We had uh, legislation prepared. We uh, ended up introducing it in the Senate on Monday instead of uh, later in the week uh, to get it kind of get it underway a couple days earlier in light of uh, the horror of, of Orlando. Because in this case, you had someone who was engaging in what could only be described as terrorism, but it was also clearly indicated it was a hate crime as well. So we wanted to, to make this uh, priority uh, as soon as we could. Hate crimes are going up in the country, and the number of hate groups have increased. By one estimate, this is from the Southern Poverty Law Center, 892 hate groups are currently operating in the country, and that's up 14% from just uh, 2014, and almost a third, up, up by 33% since 2000. So it's gone way up, and of course, uh, no one would be surprised that African Americans are targeted disproportionately. For example, there are 190 uh, Ku Klux Klan groups operating around the country, not surprisingly, anti-Muslim uh, groups are also growing. They're way up since just 2014. So we, we've got a, a major hate problem, and we, we can either wait until it manifests itself into a kind of a full-blown felony that would allow you to prevent someone from getting a gun, or we can go at the problem earlier and, and, and prevent some, I believe it'll prevent crimes with firearms if we're able to... Uh, say that if you're convicted of a, a misdemeanor hate crime, you can't have a gun. Simple as that. The law would also prohibit the purchase.
possession or shipment of a firearm by anyone convicted of that defined misdemeanor hate crime. Um, or you could you could prevent someone from getting a weapon who uh, received a hate crime sentence enhancement. I believe we should start to focus on the prevention of crime, and, and, and because of that, uh, the prevention of hate crimes long before they uh, result in a, the kind of violence that we've seen in a lot of places around the country. I wanted to ask you about the evolution. I saw that Southern Poverty Law Center statistic too, and I was wondering if um, if there's any chance that the rise of hate groups and and hate crime is actually a byproduct of a greater awareness on our part that it's always been there, but we've just gotten better at identifying it and then prosecuting it as such. I think that's certainly part of it, but by one estimate, over a four-year time frame from 2010 to 2014. Approximately 43,000 hate crimes were committed using firearms. That's not even uh, counting uh, hate crimes that are that aren't involved in a firearm. So some of it might it might be attributable to the fact that you have an ongoing debate about uh, about immigration and national security and homeland security, and substantial progress made uh, at least on the question of marriage equality by folks who are or gay or lesbian, bisexual, transgender. What one group of Americans believe is progress, others might view as as uh, upending their, you know, traditional world or their their view of what marriage should be or what relationships should be. So there there could be a I hope it's not true, but there could be a a lashing out against uh, societal change. Has there been any kind of statistical analysis done to take a look at what percentage of people that have been found guilty of felony hate crimes might have been prevented from acquiring firearms because of previously being found guilty of misdemeanor hate crime? Not aware of any. We tend to only focus on the cases where there's a, a mass shooting and it's in a setting that is so unusual. We don't, what we don't often document it, but certainly don't talk much about the gun violence that happens on our streets every day. Just this past week, since the Orlando killing, you know, 69 gun deaths in the country and over 150 people injured wow. just this week. And not one of those 69, or very few, I should say, of those 69 was the subject of a lot of notoriety and coverage. Right. Mm-hmm. And given those kinds of numbers, it's stunning that there would be the need to filibuster to insist on debate on these issues. Chris Murphy had to stand on his feet for 15 hours, and Cory Booker and Dick Blumenthal spent uh, a good portion of that 15 hours on their feet. And the rest of us were there talking, trying to give Chris's vocal cords a rest, trying to get our points out, but we didn't have to stand that long. But that took 40 senators with varying degrees of participation, spending hours and hours and hours. Right. So it took all that effort just to force the Republican leadership to schedule a vote, not to get their agreement on a, on a bill that they would vote for, not to get their agreement to do more, your legislation is about guns, but I was wondering about the debate on hate crimes. In, in the episode of The West Wing, there are comments made about the need for hate crime legislation. Do you feel like that the debate has changed? Is there still a debate about the need for hate crime legislation, do you find? I think there is. Um, and in some ways, we haven't really... We've, we've progressed since the days of the... Matthew Shepard case, 
but we haven't progressed nearly enough. There, there's an element to the debate which is still outrageous and misguided by those who don't think we need to deal with this, and that's kind of a an opposition to anything that that seems to be which which you know what we should do to help the GLBT community, for example. I hope some Republicans will start to look at this issue through the lens of just the, what it is, hate crimes, instead of saying, oh, well, there go the Democrats again, trying to make uh, uh, an issue out of uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. Well, to a large extent, we have to because they're victims disproportionately, as are African-Americans. And um, that's why you have to have a law that focuses on those protected classes and I believe the, the line should be drawn at the misdemeanor level. And it's not any misdemeanor hate crime, it's a hate crime that, that has the use of force as the, the driving element in it. I know that your attitudes on gun control have evolved. Do you right. think that because of the events in Orlando, have you seen or gotten any signals that attitudes from senators across the aisle, that their attitudes are evolving as well? yet, although we're only days from, from that massacre, I hope that it causes more Republicans to uh, have the kind of um, moment that I had. And part of the way you make a decision about uh, a big issue like this is when you're facing a vote. It forced me to think of the issue and say, okay, are you going to stay in this lane of saying, well, just enforce the law and there's no, you know, no scientific proof that if you pass a law that will reduce gun violence or whatever argument I and others have been using, I finally had to say to myself, okay, you're saying to the world that you're going to vote against these three bills, and at that time it was background checks and the ban on the military-style weapon and the limitation of the clips, the magazines, the number of bullets. You're saying that you're going to vote against all those and stand up and say, we should just enforce existing law and thereby admit that there's nothing that the United States of America and our government can do. Not a single thing that we can do that's new to prevent 20 children from being uh, massacred in the most indescribably horrific way that anyone could imagine. And you're saying there's nothing we, we could do in the future to protect those children other than enforce existing law. And I finally said to myself, you, you, you cannot be serious. You cannot really take that position any longer. That's the realization I came to. Do you find that you are geared up to have this debate for your legislation on two fronts, both on the Second Amendment front, but then also on the hate crime front? Do you have to defend your position not just on gun control uh, in order to get this passed, but also just on convincing people of the need for hate crime legislation to begin with? Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're, it's almost like you have to fight a two-front war in a way, or, or have it on, on uh, two tracks. Um, and it, I think it'll be a while before we can anticipate a vote on my legislation. And like the gun issue generally, we have to figure out ways to perpetuate the debate, to sustain the debate. And that's challenging because you move on to another topic and then there's a, another event. And before you know it, the country's attention is on something else. And uh, maybe even more so in an election year. The challenge we have is how do you sustain intensity and focus and a sense of urgency over not just days or a few short weeks, but literally over months. Um, we have to do um, a range of these bills, uh, including my hate crimes bill. 
And one of the things I find intriguing about focusing on those found guilty of misdemeanor hate crime is that it neutralizes, I think, a lot of the arguments against hate crime legislation. You can argue that uh, enhanced sentencing doesn't work as a deterrent or that it's a redundancy, but it's hard to argue against identifying those most likely to commit a hate crime and keeping guns out of their hands. It's a preventative measure. Right. And if someone, if someone is, uh, is kind of enthralled with, with using guns a lot and is a violent person or has a propensity to engage in violence, they still may be dangerous, but uh, at least we can prevent them from engaging and escalating violence with a firearm. Senator, thank you so much for talking to us today about this. Well, I'm grateful, and I appreciate you putting a spotlight on it because we're going to have to sustain this over a long period of time. Since speaking to Senator Casey, four gun control measures were introduced into the Senate. All four measures failed. And to go back to this episode, which maybe feels a little bit strange, but I do think that that's what's great about the West Wing is it gives a framework to talk about some of these ideas beyond the limitations of what we actually have in real life. But one of the things I love about this episode is an understanding of like a tacit level of failure in the world of governing, that you push for something, you try and get a foot ahead, and you maybe you get an inch. And there's like a lament for all the, all the ways in which you're not actually accomplishing the sort of nobility of your goal. And, and that scene with the Lydells really frames that. But then there's also this reconciliation of differing views. And that is what's so beautiful about the Leo-Karen Larson scene. The great scene. It's so good. Yeah, I like that Aaron chose to write it not as um, a situation where Leo has brought Karen in front of him to sort of decide what to do with her, but that he's had a second thought after firing her to bring her in because he wants to understand more. And then he is actually open to changing his mind. It's interesting. It's not, it's not a scene about making up his mind in the moment what to do with her. He's already decided to fire her. And I guess something in him thought, you know, I'm getting a second chance. Maybe I'd at least give this woman a chance to express herself, to give some sort of explanation. And then they end up really connecting at a very deep level because they have similar stories. Yeah. And the way Leo talks about addiction in the episode is really powerful. Is that why you drank and took drugs? I drank and took drugs because I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. How long did it take you to get cured? I'm not cured. You don't get cured. I haven't had a drink or a pill in six and a half years. Which isn't to say I won't have one tomorrow. What would happen if you did? I don't know but probably a nightmare the likes of which both our fathers experienced, and me too. So after six and a half years, you're still not allowed to have a drink? The problem is, I don't want a drink. I want ten drinks. Are things that bad? No. Then why? Because I'm an alcoholic. I don't understand. I know. It's okay. Hardly anyone does. It's very hard to understand. When I first saw this episode, I felt like it really opened my eyes to how addiction might work. Yeah, it's great acting that scene, both of them. Yeah. Let me ask you this, and this is important. 
As the episode ends, CJ is giving a press conference. Oh, I have a note here that Jonathan and Jennifer Lydell won't be able to be at the bill signing ceremony this evening. There was some family business that required them to go back to St. Paul. And she continues to speak as the credits begin to roll. Technically a flintel? Technically a flintel. I thought so. Yeah. I said flintel when it happened. <laughs> don't want to let these things go by without being commented upon. What about take out the trash day altogether? This concept of dumping stories uh, by the White House on Friday mornings. Is that an anachronism now that we have a 24-hour day news cycle and the internet? Or I wonder if it's still... I would imagine that it is actually not an anachronism. As the senator said, the harder thing is to keep people's attention sustained on a particular topic because something new happens the next day and then it all goes away. So if you say, here's five things, right? It's not just about if you dump it on a Friday, nobody's going to cover it because nobody reads the newspaper on yeah, Saturday. that's what I meant. I mean, I get the volume aspect right. of it. It's just you throw it all out there and, you know, maybe they won't weed through and find the one that you really don't want them to find. But uh, that's what I mean. If a story is a story at any point, right. it's going to find sustenance in the internet now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, someone will tweet about it. Although I will say, if there is any kind of parallel, I definitely like will sometimes have something good to say on Twitter and I'll wait till Monday to say it. Hmm. Because I'm like, I'm not going to waste this on weekend Twitter. Interesting. You have greater self-control than I. That, <laughs> that thought flits through my mind. But if I think it's funny, I just, if it's, you know, one in the morning, <laughs> I, just, I do it at one in the morning. <laughs> like for Song Exploder episodes, when they're going to come out, I'm like, okay, well, I have to post my news item essentially in the morning during the week. Can't be at night or on the weekend. That's probably a good call. Yeah. I guess it's less important for dumb jokes. <laughs> But it's sometimes important for dumb jokes. You're like, I want to save this for peak sure. audience. Yeah. Well, now that's the beauty. Now you can retweet yourself. <laughs> so just put it out there originally anytime and then retweet during peak hours. <laughs> right. Although, man, does it look bad when you retweet yourself. Like, what kind of hole <laughs> are you? I bet the president would be very embarrassed if Mrs. Landingham caught him retweeting himself. <laughs> oh, especially not in the Oval Office. In the Oval Office. That's just especially. wrong. <laughs> And now we're going to take a quick break and then talk to Liza Weil. And now, back to the show. We're joined now by Liza Weil, who played Karen Larson in this episode. Did you watch the episode by any chance? Rewind? Um, that episode looms large in my memory. So it does. If, <laughs> yeah, that was, a big, that was a big moment for me. So it's, it's fresh. Do you remember getting the role? Fresh. Do you remember reading for it, getting it? Yes, I remember all of it. Um, it was my first year in Los Angeles. I think I was not here very long. I had one of those crazy holding deals with Warner Brothers. So I could only audition for Warner Brothers shows. I always dreamed of a holding deal. I'm very I'm very covetous right now. No one ever wanted to hold yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's an old-timey thing. They used to, it is. They used to just give them out at the airport, Josh. Um, well, I was at the wrong airport because <laughs> I never got one. <laughs> yes, it's a dubious honor. So yeah, I went in for uh, John Levy, and uh, he That's was the casting director. Lovely. Yep, he was sort of casting ER and The West Wing, and I had sort of just found out about The West Wing, and it was it was the first season, so it wasn't on for very long. I think uh, it was new, um, but I was very excited and. I think Tommy Schlammy was in the room and, and Aaron was in the room too. And it was also, it doesn't happen like this anymore. 
you used to be able to like go in at 11 a.m. for a guest star and know that you got the job at three. It was so fast. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was still very new here and I was wee and small and, uh, and very <laughs> eager and, and nervous. So yeah, I found out that I got it and then I was just immediately sort of terrified. Um, but everybody was very nice and I just remember how happy everybody seemed. There was just that sense that everybody was really glad to be a part of something. And you, I, I, there was just a sense of it being very special. And of course, being able to spend any moment with John Spencer was, was pretty remarkable. And he yeah. was very, very kind. And I just remember thinking, God, am I ever, am I ever gonna be as relaxed as he is? I just remember him eating pizza and sort of, you know, just making jokes with people and laughing and then just being able to immediately drop in and be so wonderful. And Martin Sheen let me pee in his trailer. That was also the big the big takeaway <laughs> just from that. All job. over it, like marking his trailer kind of thing. <laughs> um no, inside it. Oh, I see. We were rushing and I couldn't they there was an AD that was trying to show me how far away the you know bathroom for the hoi polloi was and martin was walking by and he was like just go in mine just go in here oh like, he's oh, a good yeah. man that's yeah. a nice memory yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you say being nice calm memory. it's actually a great scene between karen and leo um between you and john spencer <laughs> and you are very calm and still it actually particularly stuck out to me because it is an atypical aaron sorkin scene i think and it's sort of slow it's slowly paced there are pauses and you give a very subtle and excellent performance and you really have to create somebody that we believe has a huge backstory that gets unpacked a little bit in this scene you know with your dad and uh in a, yeah in this it, it's a difficult scene it must yeah have been. It, that's what i thought they've asked you to do a lot yeah, it was uh, it was a little bit tricky. And Ken Olin directed that episode, and he mm-hmm. was so helpful and really, really smart. And he was really sort of trying to get me to be, you know, I think that my instinct, especially as a younger actor, was to just completely crumble mm-hmm. <laughs> and be devastated. And he he kept trying to get me to be um, stronger and fight back more with uh, Leo, um, which was such a smart adjustment. And I think it really added to the, what was going on there. And then, yeah, there was sort of a devastating rumor. I remember leaving that day and John took me aside and he was like, you know, they're talking about making you recurring. Ugh. And I was like, oh, what? what? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, they just, I think maybe like you're going to be like a sort of like a daughter figure to me. And I was like, oh my God. And then it didn't ever happen. Oh. <laughs> that was interesting but, too. Yeah. <laughs> I did go back and I checked IMDb to see whether you did more episodes because it seemed like, like you would, you got your job back. You have a very special relationship that gets forged yeah. in that scene with him. So it would have been actually a very interesting area to explore, particularly because he's got yeah. some he's got some tension with his actual daughter in the show, and he could have, yeah. he could have used a work daughter <laughs> who understood him so yeah. well. <laughs> It would have been nice, but there's yes, there were many many stories to tell on that show. So I think it all it all worked out all right. <laughs> yeah, you, d- you well, you did okay for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Since then, <laughs> but you speak to an interesting th- th- one of the interesting things I think about that 
scene is there is a real tension. You're clearly on the spot. I mean, you've already been fired, but you're being sort of right. But but you're being called in the carpet in front of the man who fired you and pressed on why you did what you did. Yeah. Well, you and Ken pulled off a neat trick because you do have a a dignity and a an unwillingness to break in the moment and you have an answer really as to what right. led you to do what you did. Yeah. I think that yeah, Karen sort of has a staunch belief at such a young age that Leo is uh is flawed. I don't think she really understands what addiction means or, you know, that how that works. Yeah, I think that that was a big um learning thing for me because I think I immediately was like well young people wouldn't they would just be like yes of course you're right I'm sorry (laughs) but (laughs) it was a it was a nice way to sort of open up the scene yeah it was good I love how it contrasts with the scene between Leo and Simon Bly and uh, I was wondering I don't know when the last time you watched this episode was but if um, you are as excited as I am about the Gilmore Girls connection in that office in this episode. Yeah, that was sort of foreshadowing because Gilmore Girls had not had not come to be yet. Right. Um, so that's Dakin Matthews who played Simon Bly. Yep. Um, yeah, I just got to spend a day with Dakin recently because we have now revisited Gilmore Girls and uh, and did this whole reunion. So I got to play with Dakin again, which was lovely and super bizarre. What can you tell us about that? Can you can you share anything about what's coming up? Um, I can't really share that much. I think, I mean, I think it it was, you know, it was a very lovely thing to be a part of. And I think that people who are fans of that show are going to be very happy and satisfied with what the, you know, Amy and Dan have have come up with. I think there's an official listing now that you're going to be in the first chapter of the, um, reboot. Yes. I'm in two, I'm in two of the four. I am in winter and spring. Have you read spring as well? Are they being super secretive about the scripts? Um, I was only able to read the ones that I was in, so I yeah. will be surprised as well when the other ones come out. Because yeah, they were they were kept very uh, close and protected, <laughs> understandably so. I wanted to go back just for a second. You, you talked about how you know you go in to read in the morning and you find out you got it in the afternoon. H- how much time was yeah. there between that? audition and then actually shooting the episode? Not a lot. I mean, I think that I went in the day before and and found out that afternoon and then went and had a fitting the next day. And then I think shot that day too. Wow. And I think I was only there for a day. What about all your other jobs? What, how to get away with murder? When do you go back to that? Um, so soon and not not soon enough. I'm just rotting in, in hiatus here. I mean, we've just been... <laughs> <laughs> We've been down for so long. So yeah, we go back. I think we do start pre-production first week of July and we start shooting July 11th. Oh, so um yeah, we're we're on we're on soon too. I'll I'll no doubt see you in Shondaland. I hope so. I hope so. It's so nice to hear that I I mean I love this episode so much, so it's really nice to hear that it was a significant memory for you too. Oh yeah, it really really was. I I'm so glad that I was able to like get on early. I have so many friends who are diehard fans of the West Wing and who are actors that just are still in mourning that they never got to <laughs> to sort of show up on it. Did you work with Aaron at all? Was he around when you, you, you say well, he was at the audition? Aaron, he didn't. He was yeah. at the audition, but I didn't know who anybody was. So like hmm. there wasn't, so he actually 
popped in when I was shooting this scene with John, but I didn't know that he was, I didn't know that it was Aaron Sorkin. I, uh, he was just some guy that sort of shuffled around and was like, I just, I'm really, I think what you're doing is really great. And I, I don't have anything to say to you. And I was like, okay, but he didn't introduce himself and I didn't know it was him. And then like, I think it was like years later, I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> that's who that was. That's who the um, mysterious shuffler was. Yeah. It was also the day that the Christmas crew gifts were being passed out and everybody got these awesome West Wing coats. Nice. Did you get one of those, Josh? No. I got a Swiss army knife and (laughs) I got a West Wing bike that I gave to Lynn Miranda. And I I don't know what else. Yeah. You gave your bike to Lynn Miranda? Yes. Nice. Well, my feeling is as nice as it is to get a bicycle with the name of the TV show that you're on embossed on it, you can't ride it. It's you like wearing your own band's t-shirt. You can't ride around like, yeah, I've, I've, have you ever worn anything with the name of the show you're on on it? You can't. No, no. 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 As, yeah, it's a, yeah. No, you can't do it. Yeah. At holiday time, I just want someone to give me money. <laughs> <laughs> money with the name of my show on it. That's fine. That I'll spend. Yeah. But. Just some money. <laughs> you guys have both been um, recruited on many shows to speak a lot of dialogue quickly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Between your overlap and Shonda Rhimes shows, but then also now, you, you know, you guys are both West Wing alum and um, yeah. Josh had Sports Night. So, and you had Gilmore Girls. So that, that's, that's. Yes. I know. It's a very, do you feel this way, Josh? Do you feel like, um, I, I, I've always felt like it took me so long. I think I, that, that I was, I had a predisposition to speaking quickly because I was just so freaked out all the time and didn't <laughs> feel like I had earned the right to take my time with anything. And it took me so long to sort of learn the lesson to to slow down. And then ironically, I, I just got hired to like reinforce that bad habit. It's actually, it's funny. It's funny that you say that because I, I don't think about it too deeply, but I think I do have that. And I think... I have still yet to learn <laughs> to take my time. And I, I it just that just brought back a flood of a memory. I don't know if a single memory can be a flood. But what I'm saying is, yeah. this memory just came back to me. My first episode of The West Wing, there was a moment where I had to stop and take an aspirin, <laughs> um, mm. open the bottle and drink it. And I think I kept doing it really quickly because I still uh, had this thing. I I remember Alex Graves, the director, saying, dude, just take two aspirin. Like, take your time. And I said, no, no, this feels like an opera about aspirin. And it's taking too long. (laughs) And it's taking much too much time. How does a man take an aspirin in life? I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, well done. Well, there you go. I think I have not, I have yet to learn. But I will say even on the normally fast talking as i tried to allude to earlier the normally fast talking west wing you had a nice scene where you guys took the time that was required um for those moments and those beats yeah i felt like it was in the human realm of uh mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of speech patterns yeah i didn't <laughs> yeah. i don't yes. think i had to <laughs> which which ends up having a big dramatic effect on the show because you've been you know bouncing back and forth between all this quick dialogue and so then when those moments where it does slow down to human speed it suddenly feels like you're really soaking in the performances and and what's being said yeah it is such a good thing when you have shows that have 
of like a very specific style. And then, you know, the indicator, I think the only indicator of a, of a shift in tone is, is that there's all of a sudden you're allowed to put air in things, which I think is so great. They really were able to accomplish so much with, when people were able to just put some air in there. Did you end up watching the show after that? Did- yes. I watch it like every couple of years. I'll just watch the whole, the whole show. Oh, that's awesome. With the exception of I, I do skip over the, the season that Sorkin wasn't there. <laughs> but <laughs> but I watched hey, it's I multiple was. it's the whole end of the well I have this with Rishi we're doing a podcast about the entire show and he only recently revealed to me that he's well he's a deep dive expert on the first four seasons after that not so much yeah yeah it's a, it's a similar thing <laughs> for me fair enough yeah yeah I, I'm gonna go back on to the Gilmore guys for my third episode with, with those guys um, oh, nice. on season seven. And I have uh, never seen season seven. Are you going to watch the whole season? Or are you just going to watch the episode that you're speaking about? I think I have to watch the whole season just to, you know, have, wow. have context and everything. Yeah. Rishi takes his podcasts very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it is. I'm, well, I'm curious about your, your thoughts. It's a, yeah, yeah. it is a strange, it is a strange thing. Liza, have you know. been on the Gilmore guys? I have. Yeah. I did. I did one of them. Yes, they're lovely. They're really nice guys, and they're they're a delight. They're so smart, and it's it was a real treat to be able to to speak about that time of my life with people that are so well versed. Like they really do their research, and they know that show so well. So it was really a special day for me to do that. Yeah, I I, I enjoy them. Thanks so much for talking to us. This is awesome. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's nice to talk to you guys. And uh, yeah, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you soon, Josh. And Shondaland. People think yeah. Shondaland's a concept. They don't realize that it will someday <laughs> be a theme park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you can only hope. And that's it for our episode. Thanks so much for listening. You can discuss this episode with us or with other West Wing Weekly listeners on our website, thewestwingweekly.com, or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thewestwingweekly. You can also tweet at us. I'm at Rishi Hirway. Josh is at Josh Molina. Senator Bob Casey is at Casey, And Liza Weil is at Liza underscore Weil. Okay. Okay. What's next? I'm excited to tell you about a brand new show from Radiotopia called The Recipe. It's hosted by J. Kenji Lopez-Alt and Deb Perlman. You might know Kenji from Serious Eats and all his incredible food wisdom. He's also the author of the cookbooks The Food Lab and The Walk, both of which are New York Times bestsellers. Deb is the creator of the extremely popular recipe website, Smitten Kitchen. She's a self-taught home cook and cookbook author. And on this new show, Deb and Kenji will do a deep dive into the techniques and ingredients behind some of the most popular go-to dishes. Look for the recipe wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes start February 26th. Radiotopia. From P.